This spring, if you'd rather spend time enjoying your lawn instead of trying to keep it alive, there's good news. True Green is the easiest and most affordable way to get a beautiful lawn. All you have to do is water and mow, and they'll do the rest. Weed control, fertilization, aeration, and even some things you might not even think of. They'll do all of it, while you can do literally anything else. With True Green, you could have your lawn looking as good as a putting green. That's not hyperbole. True Green is the official lawn care treatment provider of the PGA Tour. True Green offers a satisfaction guarantee, and they have a verified best price promise, which guarantees you the lowest price with no compromise on quality. You do you. Let True Green do your lawn care. Visit TrueGreen.com to get the best lawn at the best price with the best people guaranteed. It's Sunday, July 8th. I'm Margaret Brennan, and this is Face the Nation. There is breaking news this morning as the operation to rescue 12 young boys and their soccer coach from a flooded cave in Thailand is underway. We'll have the latest. Here at home, President Trump prepares for what could be a crucial week in his presidency. First up, a final decision on who he plans to name to the Supreme Court. And they're all great. They're all great. That announcement comes tomorrow night. Then it's off to Brussels to meet with NATO. That alliance of U.S. military allies are still reeling from a disastrous G7 summit last month in Canada. I'm going to tell NATO you got to start paying your bills. The United States is not going to take care of everything. And we're the schmucks that are paying for the whole thing. Another controversial meeting on the president's itinerary, a one-on-one next Monday with Russian President Vladimir Putin. Getting along with Russia and getting along with China and getting along with other countries is a good thing. It's not a bad thing. You know what? Putin's fine. He's fine. We're all fine. But things are not so fine with North Korea. Secretary of State Mike Pompeo spent two days in Pyongyang without meeting leader Kim Jong-un. He told reporters that the two sides were still working towards complete denuclearization of North Korea. No one walked away from that. They're still equally committed. Chairman Kim is still committed. But just after Pompeo left, North Koreans called the meeting regrettable and accused the U.S. of making cancerous and gangster-like demands. The Secretary of State slapped back. So if those requests were gangster-like they are, the, the world is a gangster because there was a unanimous decision at the U.N. Security Council about what needs to be achieved. And it's official. The trade war has begun. The president imposed tariffs on $34 billion of Chinese imports. Beijing responded with tit-for-tat taxes on U.S.-made goods and accused the president of starting the biggest trade war in economic history. We'll speak with the president's ambassador to NATO, Kay Bailey Hutchinson, and check in with key senators on both sides of the aisle. Iowa Republican Joni Ernst and Delaware Democrat Chris Coons. Plus, we'll have plenty of analysis on all the political news of the week coming up on Face the Nation. Good morning and welcome to Face the Nation. We begin with the story that is dominating world headlines, the efforts to free 12 young boys and their soccer coach who have been trapped in a flooded cave in Thailand for 16 days. That rescue has been underway, and at least four of the boys have been saved. CBS News foreign correspondent Ben Tracy is near the site in Chiang Rai, Thailand. Ben, uh, what can you tell us? Well, Margaret, so far this is the news that we had all been hoping to hear. These four boys now out of the cave after 16 very long days. We now believe that all four of them were transported to the hospital in Chiang Rai via helicopter and then ambulance. And we did see the, uh, the head of this rescue operation gave a news conference. He said this was much more successful than they thought it would be, that it went very smoothly. He said from the time the boys exited the mouth of the cave to when they got on the helicopter was just two minutes. And he says that was five times faster than when they tried this in their rehearsals. So they are feeling very confident tonight that the first stage of this operation, getting four boys out of this cave, has gone extraordinarily well. Margaret? Why did this rescue operation happen now, and what's next? Well, you know, they really felt a sense of urgency. They felt like they had a very small window of time to attempt this. And keep in mind, this is not the preferred mode of doing this. This is a very dangerous operation. 
to bring these young boys, they're just ages 11 to 16, out of this cave this way, uh, the way that trained Navy SEALs would do it. Uh, the reason they did it is they felt with heavy rain, and it is raining here now again, heavy rain could flood that cave again and cut these boys off from supplies and from any sort of successful rescue. That potentially could mean that they would be in that cave for months on a very small piece of real estate that would shrink as the cave flooded. So they felt like they had a little window of opportunity with the weather. They felt the boys were in the right condition to uh, withstand this operation. And so far, they have been right. These four boys have come out. We have every reason to believe that all four of them are alive. We do not have any sense of their actual condition in terms of uh, what kind of shape they're in. They will now be evaluated at the hospital for about three to five days. President, President Trump tweeted this morning that the U.S. is working uh, closely with the government of Thailand to get the children out. He said very brave and talented people are at work here. What do we know about those efforts? Yeah, you know, for the last week we've been sitting outside the entrance to this cave and we have seen U.S. military personnel there on the site. They have been there in various capacities as advisors, but we're also told that there were American divers in the water uh, as part of this rescue. This was a, an international effort. You had uh, eight, a team of 18 divers, five of which were from Thailand. The rest of them were international. So you had the U.S., you had Britain, you had Australia. This is really something that has captivated the world and countries all over the world send personnel there. Just being there on that site and seeing how many people showed up to help in so many different capacities, it's really quite striking, and I'm sure that is a big part of why this has been successful so far. You know, Ben, this is so risky, this rescue, but the alternatives are so tough for some of those parents there who've been waiting to hear about their loved ones. I know you've been speaking with some of them. What are they thinking right now as this is underway? I can only imagine. I mean, we, we talked to the father of one boy, the youngest boy in the cave. He's just 11 years old. His name is Titan. And we talked to his dad, and he said this has just been horrible. It's been nerve-wracking every day to sit there waiting for news. First, it was that they couldn't find the boys in the cave. Then once they found them, that sense of elation that all these parents had. But then to find out that this, this rescue mission was going to be horribly dangerous. Uh, so this has really been a roller coaster for these families. And I can tell you, out at that cave site, there was basically a tent where all the, the family members, most of the mothers, were just sitting in chairs watching TV coverage of this, waiting for some news about their sons. Uh, they today, we are told, were standing at the mouth of the cave as this operation was happening, and they will now be reunited with their sons at the hospital. How much anger is there uh, at the situation itself. I, I know these boys were being supervised. They had a soccer coach with them. Um, he's been heavily criticized for putting them in this position in the first place. Is he really to blame here? Yeah, well, let me set the scene for you here. I mean, th this was a soccer team. They had finished their practice, and from what we have been told by multiple people here in Thailand, there was some sort of birthday celebration that was going on. That's the reason they were going to this cave. They were celebrating somebody's birthday. Um, so they went into this cave. The coach apparently was with them. There are big signs outside this cave, warning of the danger this time of year during the rainy season, that this cave floods and that it can be unsafe. So certainly that is something that this coach will have to address uh, with these parents and with the, the larger community at some point. However, the coach did issue an apology from inside the cave via a letter to these parents. The parents and the kids were sending letters back and forth the other day. And in several of the letters, the parents went out of their way to say, we don't blame you, coach. Please take care of our kids in there. We know you love them. We know you're trying to protect them. And we have heard reports that this coach, when they went in there with very little food, imagine they probably had some snacks on them because they had been playing soccer. He apparently gave all of his food and water to these kids to keep them alive until rescuers came. And we are told that he is in one of the weakest conditions of anyone in that cave. Uh, so certainly he has done his best while he's been in there. He apparently also taught them how to meditate to try to keep them calm, to conserve their energy, and to not panic while they've been inside. Margaret? Ben, thank you for your reporting, and we will continue to follow the rescue efforts in Thailand here on CBS News and our streaming network, CBSN. We want to go now, though, to Omaha, Nebraska, where Iowa Republican Senator Joni Ernst has crossed the state line to talk with us this morning. Uh, good morning to you, Senator. Good morning, Margaret. Thank you. 
I, I want to talk about uh, another story in Asia, and that is what has been happening overnight with our Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo. Uh, the North Koreans seem to be bashing President Trump's hopes here for a quick denuclearization deal. Uh, while Secretary Pompeo is speaking in positive, optimistic terms, the North Koreans said he had gangster-like diplomacy. Uh, seems like a return to this hardline rhetoric. Uh, have you seen any indication of tangible progress? Well, I do think talks are progress, and so I applaud the, the Secretary of State, Mike Pompeo, for engaging in these discussions. The ultimate goal is denuclearization of the Korean Peninsula, and if these talks will eventually lead to that, I am very, very supportive of those efforts. Of, of course, we're going to hear hard talk coming from North Korea. This is not the path that they want to take, but it is what the rest of the world wants to see. How long do you think the U.S. should wait before restarting its military exercises? Well, I think we should continue with military exercises. Obviously, I believe that they have a purpose in keeping the peninsula safe and making sure that should anything ever happen, we are well rehearsed with our allies to engage. Um, so I would say soon if we don't see those talks continue. Also, uh, because you sit on armed services, I want to get your views here on the upcoming meetings that the president will be having this week with our military allies at NATO and then uh, with uh, an adversary, as many would describe him, Vladimir Putin, a few days after that. When he was on this program last week, Ambassador John Bolton, the national security advisor to the president, proposed partnering with Russia in Syria to oust Iran. Uh, are you concerned that in exchange for such an agreement, the U.S. would draw down its almost 2,000 forces that it has on the ground in Syria? I, I would be concerned. We need stability in that region. And I would just caution the president as we move forward with any discussions with Russia. Obviously, Russia is not our friend. We oppose many of the actions that they've taken going back um, to the invasion of Crimea and so forth. Um, so I would be very cautious in those moves. But if there is a way that we can partner and put a lid on Iran, I, I would support that. But again, being very cautious because I don't see that Russia would ever be a true friend or ally to the United States of America. Some of your Republican colleagues, though, recently traveled to Moscow this week uh, and met with Russian officials. Do you think it was a mistake for Senator Thune, uh, Senator Thelby to, Shelby to have gone? No, I don't think it's a mistake. Again, um, if we can engage in discussions that are productive, that's okay. But again, just being very cautious and understanding that they will never be a true friend to the United States of America. So again, just as it is with North Korea, discussions are good. And if we can move towards uh, a resolution where the world becomes a safer place, we should always strive for that. But again, we just need to be very cautious with a number of these leaders, because I don't know that they have the same interests that the United States of America does. I want to ask you about something close to home for you, and that is uh, what China is now calling the largest trade war in economic history. Yes. What are you hearing uh, from so many of those voters in Iowa who are supportive of the president but worried mm -hmm. about what this will mean for them? And, and you hit the nail on the head, Margaret. The, our voters are supportive of President Trump. Our farmers just really think that he is doing the right thing. But unfortunately, we are caught in the crosshairs. America's farmers and ranchers are always the first to be retaliated against in these types of trade negotiations. And the tariffs that have been imposed and the retaliation uh, stemming from that puts us in a very vulnerable position as our markets go down. Uh, so I would would just encourage the president. Of course, we want great deals, and I know he'll be able to negotiate those, but we would like to see a number of these trade agreements wrapped up in short order. The sooner, the better. Well, do you hear of any progress? I mean, it sounds like the president's only talking about escalation, and, and are you asking the president to send any kind of financial aid to some of these farmers? 
Well, um, no. And matter of fact, we push back on financial aid. Um, here in the Midwest, we believe in trade, not aid. Um, we don't want another welfare-type program uh, going to our farmers. They want to produce and they want to sell their goods to, to markets. So that's uh, what we strive for. But I did speak with Ambassador Lighthizer, our U.S. trade rep, yesterday, and I did get encouraging news from him. I think there are a number of agreements that we're very close on. And he is working on a number of, of new free trade agreements. So I, I am encouraged. Um, I would ask that we stay strong. But at some point, we have to close the deal. And I, as I said, I would like to see the president do that sooner rather than later. Just to clarify, you're talking about markets other than China, perhaps deals with Mexico, Canada? Absolutely. Uh, markets other than China, I believe that we can work to a point where we have Mexico and Canada on board. I think China will be a much longer haul. But there are other agreements that are being worked on as well. And, and I would uh, encourage the ambassador as well as uh, the president to get those done soon so that we can start developing those opportunities for our Iowa farmers. Senator, um, uh, you are a, a strong female leader in the Senate, and I want to ask you about words the president said this week about one of your colleagues, Elizabeth Warren. I'm going to get one of those little kids, and in the middle of the debate, when she proclaims that she's of Indian heritage because her mother said she has high cheekbones, that's her only evidence that her mother said she had high cheekbones, we will take that little kid and say, but we have to do it gently. Because we're in the Me Too generation, so we have to be very gentle. <laughs> and we will very gently take that kid, and we will slowly toss it, hoping it doesn't hit her and injure her arm. It's not unfamiliar for the president to attack Senator Warren, but he seemed there to be mocking the Me Too movement, which was about defending those who were victims of sexual mm. abuse and harassment. How do you respond to that? Mm-hmm. Well, I take Me Too very seriously, and I had, of course, when I was a young woman, volunteered at a women's crisis shelter in Ames, Iowa. And so when we see survivors coming forward, I think that we need to take that very seriously, and we need to learn from this episode in history and make sure that other survivors are able to come forward. And, of course, it is something that we need to discuss throughout society because we need to make sure that we are protecting men and women um, they should never go through sexual harassment, sexual assault, or anything remotely similar to that. So I do support the Me Too movement, and I, I hope that others will as well. We need people to speak up, not hide these horrible circumstances. Senator, thank you. Thanks, if, Margaret. If you want to learn more about the trade war with China and what prompted it, as well as how it could actually impact you, you can go to our website at facethenation.com. As for the Face Nation broadcast, right here, we'll be back with Democrat Chris Coons. I used to think that all diet and weight loss plans were the same. Well, not anymore, because I found Noom. Noom is a new and totally different approach to losing weight and getting healthy that uses psychology and small goals to help change your habits. So it's easy to lose the weight and keep it off for good. Noom combines the power of technology with real human support offering as little or as much help as you want along the way. And since Noom is an app, it's always with you and easy to use, which makes it super easy to stay on track and reach your goals. Plus, it's really simple to get started. Just go online, answer a few quick questions, and they'll create a personalized program just for you. Noom helped me lose my old way of thinking about food and dieting. So what do you have to lose? Visit noom.com slash podcast, N-O-O-M dot com slash podcast and start your 14-day trial today. Like they say, change your habits, change your mind, and change for good with Noom. We're back for some perspective from a key Democrat, Delaware Senator Chris Coons, who sits on the Judiciary and Foreign Relations Committees. He joins us from Wilmington this morning. Uh, Senator, because you're on foreign relations, you have oversight of the State Department, and I want to ask you, uh, given the developments with North Korea, have, have you been given any detail as to exactly what was agreed upon at that Singapore summit with President Trump? 
Uh, no, we haven't. We haven't gotten the sort of detailed strategy um, or uh, updated briefing from Secretary Pompeo that uh, I think we need and deserve. Uh, my concern, Margaret, uh, is that the Singapore summit last month was really not much more than a reality TV handshake summit that didn't really accomplish much in terms of getting North Korea to commit to verifiable and irreversible denuclearization. Uh, I far prefer diplomacy uh, to Twitter threats, uh, and I commend Secretary Pompeo for how hard he's trying to make something out of nothing. But so far, I don't see that we've accomplished much, and my concern is that President Trump unilaterally gave away doing military exercises with our vital allies, South Korea and Japan, without consulting with them, uh, and we got nothing but empty promises of denuclearization from Kim Jong-un. Uh, speaking of allies, the president's heading to Europe this week and to that NATO summit. Uh, he's, he's got a good news story to tell. Spending among our military allies is actually up uh, since he came into office. The budget at NATO has grown. So has his tough talk actually paid off? Well, I hope that President Trump, as he goes to the NATO summit, will claim credit, will declare victory and say, uh, that NATO's budget, as you've said, has gone up by more than $14 billion since he became president, uh, and that he will lock arms and join forces with our vital NATO allies in order to confront two real threats to the United States, China on trade and Russia on security and defending our democracies. I'm concerned, Margaret, that instead what we're going to see is a repeat of last month's show where President Trump went to the G7 summit in Canada uh, and put a thumb in the eye of the Prime Minister of Canada and picked fights with our vital allies on uh, tariffs and trade and on uh, security issues, and then went to Singapore for a summit with Kim Jong-un that, as I just said, didn't produce much. Looking forward to next week, my concern is he'll continue to stir the pot with NATO, undermine the credibility of our commitment to a mutual security that is at the core of NATO, and then go to Helsinki for a summit with Putin, uh, where I'm very concerned about what things he might give away or what things he might say with Vladimir Putin, who really is a core adversary of both the United States and the NATO alliance. We will be watching this. Because you sit on judiciary, I want to ask you now about the announcement we expect tomorrow from President Trump on his Supreme Court justice pick. We know, according to our own reporting at CBS uh, from Jan Crawford, that there are three contenders now, Brett Kavanaugh, Raymond Kethledge and Amy Coney Barrett. Uh, with Kethledge, it appears now in that first place uh, position. Of these three, are, are there any that you would support or are you opposed uh, in principle to all three? Uh, well, Margaret, uh, first, uh, I don't think we should be having this uh, conversation because we seem to be playing by different rules with different presidents. I'll remind you that the Republican majority refused to even hold a hearing for 10 months on an eminently qualified, confirmable, moderate judge who was nominated by President Obama. We're just four months away from an election now, uh, and we should be playing by the same rules. Well, that was but presidential. But I'll do my this job on the Judiciary Committee. Uh, I will do my job on the Judiciary Committee in advance of the congressional elections this November, and I assume President Trump will nominate someone from that short list prepared for him by uh, two right-wing activist groups, the Heritage Foundation and the Federalist Society. Uh, I'll meet with his nominee, I'll review their record, and I'll ask them tough questions to try and get to the core issue here, which is how will this next justice nominated by President Trump affect the rights and freedoms of average Americans? Uh, Margaret, this is a very important decision. It's going to affect um, the Affordable Care Act and the protection of pre-existing conditions. It'll affect reproductive choice and individual freedom uh, for millions of women all over the United States. It'll affect consumer protection, environmental protection, LGBT rights. Uh, Justice Kennedy was at the center of many key decisions on exactly these issues. Uh, I'll do my job on the Judiciary Committee. We'll have a difficult confirmation hearings this fall. But I hope folks who are watching will also speak up, call their senators, express their views, and see this as what it is, the consequence of an election and a reason to be more engaged and to vote. It sounds like you're saying you're keeping an somewhat of an open mind here, uh, but uh, Majority Leader McConnell has said he wants this new justice seated by October. Uh, do you see any path for other Democrats to block that plan? Well, it'll be very difficult uh, for 49 Democrats uh, and the two independents who caucus with us, uh, given the change to the rules that was made by the Republican majority uh, in the run-up to the last Supreme Court nomination uh, of Justice Gorsuch. Um, it doesn't require 60 votes anymore. It requires just 50. 
Uh, if all the Republicans stick together uh, along with the vice president, they'll be able to confirm whomever uh, President Trump nominates. I'll remind you, Margaret, that there are many um, Trump judicial nominees who have cleared the Judiciary Committee unanimously. It is not impossible for President Trump to find a highly qualified conservative judge uh, who could be confirmed on a bipartisan basis. Mm -hmm. uh, but the folks who are on that list, prepared by the Federalist Society, represent the far right end um, okay. of the American um, Constitutional and Judiciary Committee a community. And those okay. are folks who I think will be very hard for Democrats to support. Senator Coons, thank you. We'll be right back. Don't go away. Thank you. Are you having trouble sleeping? NFL players have been coached. Blue light from smart devices, it can affect your sleep. They'll even wear blue blocker glasses in the evening for improved sleep. Others will try tart cherry juice and smoothies. Not only can it help fight inflammation, but to help you sleep, it's got high amounts of natural melatonin that's beneficial for sleep. The other night, my girlfriend told me I was snoring way too much and even the earplugs weren't helping. So the next day, she took me to the Sleep Number store because if I was snoring, at least she could get a good night's sleep on a Sleep Number bed. Sleep Number beds allow you to adjust on each side to your ideal firmness, comfort, and support. The Sleep Number 360 smart bed senses your movement and automatically adjusts to keep you sleeping comfortably through the night. With Sleep IQ technology inside the bed, it tracks how you're sleeping so you can know every morning how well you've slept and gain insights for your best sleep. Experience the smart, effortless comfort of the Sleep Number 360 smart bed. Find your competitive edge with proven quality sleep from $999. Sleep Number is the official sleep and wellness partner of the NFL. You'll only find Sleep Number at one of their 575 Sleep Number stores nationwide. Find the one nearest you at sleepnumber.com slash cadence. That's sleepnumber.com slash C-A-D-E-N-C-E. Sleep Number. Be sure to tune in to CBS News special coverage of President Trump's announcement of his Supreme Court pick. That's tomorrow night at 9 p.m. Eastern on CBS Network and our digital streaming network, CBSN. We'll be right back with a lot more Face the Nation. Stay with us. was a memorable moment from last year's NATO summit. During President Trump's first trip abroad, he brushed past Montenegro's prime minister. The president will be center stage again this year as he ramps up pressure on NATO allies to spend more on their own defense. We go now to Brussels and the U.S. ambassador to NATO, former Texas Senator Kay Bailey Hutchinson. Welcome to the program. Ambassador how much of a threat is Russia to the military alliance? Well, thank you, Margaret, very much. Um, we are seeing Russia uh, with malign activities on so many fronts right now, uh, especially the hybrid area where uh, they are, through social media, sowing discontent and even false information to try to divide our allies and take them away from uh, the West and toward uh, some dissidents and then hopefully they think influenced by them. Uh, they're also doing things like the terrible attack, the nerve agent attack in Great Britain. They're supporting um, a Syrian dictator who is using chemical weapons on his own people to kill even children and it's just uh, on and on and on. They are also in violation of the very important INF Treaty with the United States. Uh, they are not supposed to be building ballistic missiles at, at an intermediate range, but they are, and we know they are. So there are so many areas where they, they are uh, working against the interests of freedom and democracies and uh, peace in the world, and it is a big um, it's a big part of our deterrence effort to keep them from uh, taking over sovereign nations as they did in the Ukraine uh, when they took Crimea in 2014. Well, on that point, uh, President Trump has seemed to leave the door open to recognizing Russia's annexation of Crimea in some public statements. Last week on this program, Ambassador John Bolton said, while that's not U.S. policy, he said the president is open to changing that. Can you reassure our allies that the president won't agree to recognize Crimea as part of Russia when he meets privately with Vladimir Putin? 
Well, I think that uh, our alliance is very solid and including uh, all of the efforts that the United States is making to shore up the sovereignty of the Ukraine. The Ukraine people, uh, they stood very tall in their uh, their really uh, peaceful revolution is what it was uh, at Maidan. Um, they have stood strong for their sovereignty and their right of self-governance, and we are standing behind them on that. And there is no, uh, there's no light between any of our allies on that very important issue. And the president, it sounds like you're saying, won't change his position on that. But the president seems to be muddying the waters on this question of whether Vladimir Putin is a friend or a foe. I mean, just this week, he called Vladimir Putin a fine man. Is that how you would describe Putin? Well, I wouldn't. But I will say that uh, despite how uh, the many malign activities that Vladimir Putin has been doing just in the last few years, um, NATO talks to Russia. We have what's called a NATO-Russia Council, where the ambassador from Russia meets with our NATO ambassadors. Uh, many of the foreign leaders uh, in our alliance meet with Putin. Um, most certainly, the Europeans do. Uh, but the effort, and, and our military does too, as well. We have military-to-military uh, -military talks with the Russian uh, chief of defense. But this is to deconflict. It is not to allow escalation of hostilities. And also, I think the president will encourage Vladimir Putin to start changing their behavior to be uh, we'd like for Russia to be an ally a trading partner but right now we have sanctions against Russia because of their malign influence and the things they're doing that are very disruptive uh, trying to divide our alliance so yes we should be talking to Vladimir Putin and many of our allied nations do as well but it is to try to bring them in the tent instead of uh, just constantly seeing them do these things that are attempting to disrupt us, but will not. Well, Ambassador, we will be watching that meeting closely. Thank you for your time. Thank you, Margaret. And we'll be back in a moment. What's your next adventure? Everyone deserves a chance to do what they love. Pacific Life helps you reach financial goals while you go after your personal ones. Plans change over time, and your financial solutions can too. Pacific Life has a variety of financial solutions that can help you complement your life goals and passions while managing the uncertainties. Backed by more than 150 years of experience, you can count on Pacific Life to be there so you can go out and keep living your best life. Pacific Life is one of the most dependable and experienced insurers in the industry and has been named one of the 2019 world's most ethical companies by the Ethisphere Institute. The freedom to go after whatever is next for you? That's the power of Pacific. Ask a financial professional about how Pacific Life can help give you the freedom to do what you love. Or visit www.pacificlife.com. And it's time now for some political analysis. Rehan Salam is the executive editor of National Review and a policy fellow at the National Review Institute. Kelsey Snell is a congressional reporter for NPR. Mark Landler and Tolu Olorunipa cover the White House for the New York Times and Bloomberg News, respectively. Uh, let's start off with you, Mark. This NATO summit, we heard from Ambassador Hutchinson, this strong alliance standing up to Russia. But the concern is what happens in the days afterward. Why are, why are our allies so concerned about the summit? Well, I think, uh, as Senator Kuhn said on the air earlier, a lot of people fear a repeat of the president's trip to the G7 in Quebec, followed by his summit with Kim Jong-un. He was extremely antagonistic, if not outright hostile, to our G7 allies and then had this love fest with Kim. And I think the fear is, given some of the things the president has said in the last few days about NATO, he said the other day in Montana that they're killing us, um, that he'll go and have yet another rocky, antagonistic meeting in Brussels and then go on to Helsinki and meet with Vladimir Putin and have 
a very kind of harmonious meeting. And that is a pattern that at the very least runs counter to uh, six decades of American foreign policy, uh, but it's extremely damaging and it comes against a backdrop of increasing trade battles with Europe, questions about obviously the amount of spending that they're do on their defense. And so there's just a lot of fear that we've got gotten locked into what they view, our allies view, as a very dangerous and damaging pattern. And Talu, I mean, you, you don't hear praise from Democrats very often uh, of the president, but Senator Kuhn said it, there is a good news story here when it comes to NATO, that spending is up. So why is the president not focusing on the win? Why is he focusing on what he says is a problem? Yeah, we see this pattern from the president regularly. He wants to push our allies as hard as possible to uh, move in a direction that even if they're already moving in that direction, he wants them to go even further. He won't sort of accept a win. A lot of the spending increases that happened uh, started under President Obama uh, and it's increased under President Trump. And President Trump has taken credit for that. He said that uh, Jen Stoltenberg, the NATO Secretary General, is his biggest fan because spending is up in, in NATO. But he wants them to do more and he uh, conflates the issue of trade and the issue of security assurances. Uh, he wants NATO countries not only to help the U.S. Uh, by spending more on their own defense, but also to uh, remove some of the trade barriers and to remove the trade deficit that currently exists. So you hear the president talk about those things as one and the same, the trade deficit with, between the U.S. and the EU and the NATO spending issue. The president believes that the U.S. is taking, getting taken adva advantage of and uh, that the U.S. needs to push much more harder on its allies, even more so than its adversaries. Rehan, the other thing that we will start this week with, which is big news in and of itself, is this announcement of the president's Supreme Court pick. Monday night, 9 p.m., primetime uh, presentation here. Of the three contenders, who is most pleasing to conservatives here? Who, who do you think is actually going to become the nominee? Well, conservatives are divided on the question, partly because different groups have different objectives. If your objective is to have a justice who like William Brennan, plays the role of strategist and chief diplomat for a new majority on the court, then someone like Brett Kavanaugh has very, very strong credentials. If you want someone who is likeliest to get confirmed, then you perhaps want Kethledge. If you want someone who is going to make a mark culturally and politically, if you want someone who will uh, provoke a constructive fight within the Senate, then perhaps you want uh, Amy Coney Barrett. What so it really depends. Fight? Well, what that means is... Uh, if, politically speaking, you don't necessarily want this to go easily, right? If you have domestic political considerations at work, if you want to draw out contrasts in our you know, larger political conversation, then it's possible that a more polarizing nominee is actually a better fight for the Trump administration. So again, it really depends on what your objective is, because if you have you know, one nominee who goes down, that could also create a larger conversation, and also that could be very difficult for some of the Senate Democrats running for re-election in 2018. And, and Kelsey, you're ending exactly where I want to pick up with you, which is that there's the politics of just getting confirmation, but there's also the politics of how this plays nationally. Absolutely. The proximity of seating a justice in October to those November races. What's the connection? The connection is extremely strong, because particularly for those red state Democrats, people like Heidi Heitkamp in North Dakota, uh, Joe Donnelly in Indiana. They are in a really awkward position where they have to decide, do they vote in a way that their, many of their voters, more conservative voters, would be happy and have them help approve one of these justices? Or do they want to be in a situation where they're bolstering Democrats going into 2020? It is a really, really awkward scenario for them. It's also fairly awkward for people like Susan Collins, who is, again, in a position where she could be a deciding vote here. And it's not something she's uncomfortable with, and it's something she kind of relishes, that moment of being the, the decider, somebody who gets that, that moment of being important. But... It is still really awkward for Republicans and for Democrats who kind of float in that middle, that very narrow middle that doesn't really exist very much anymore. And, Mark, it seems like from both liberals and uh, conservatives, they want to make this a relitigation of Roe versus Wade. Is it really that simple? Well, you know, some legal scholars will tell you that they think the odds of Roe versus Wade being relitigated by this court are relatively low, that that isn't necessarily the kind of fight that John Roberts, for example, is looking to take on. Mm -hmm. um, I, I have to say that may be the case. There may be a desire on both sides of the spectrum, but by all accounts, 
Amy Coney Barrett, the person who's most likely to be the catalyst for that, appears to be fading uh, in, in the kind of sweepstakes. And the other justices, the ones who appear to be, or the other judges, the ones who appear to be the finalists, are, are less likely to automatically lead to that kind of outcome than Barrett would have been. And Tolu, it was interesting to hear uh, our Paula Reed reported that uh, in a conversation with Rudy Giuliani, the president's lawyer, he said to her that any Supreme Court justice should not recuse him or her, herself from any questions regarding the Mueller uh, investigation should it reach that court. Democrats are talking about this. Is this really something that needs to be part of the calculus? Yeah, you can expect this to come up during the confirmation hearings. There are some of these potential nominees who have written uh, on this topic, on specifically on sort of whether a president would have to submit himself to uh, an, an investigation or lawsuits, criminal or, or otherwise. And it's clear that this is something Democrats want to uh, put on national TV during these hearings uh, so that the American people will continue to hear about the Mueller probe, will continue to hear about this whole idea of conflicts of interest in the Trump administration and among his appointees. And if the president chooses someone who has written anything that Democrats can, can seize upon, you can expect uh, them to focus on that very significantly during these hearings and make them try to make some commitments, as you saw during uh, the hearings for various cabinet secretaries early in the administration. Are you going to recuse yourself? Are you going to uh, weigh in on issues uh, where the president may be uh, under investigation? And it's going to be clear that they're going to try to get those commitments early, early on. Uh, you could probably expect to hear these, this nominee uh, sort of dance around the issue as, as, as they often do without necessarily committing one way or the other, trying to satisfy Democrats while also not necessarily making any specific commitments. This is particularly a case for, um, for Kavanaugh because of his uh, being on the team, the Ken Starr team, mm -hmm. and what he wrote in the Starr report about grounds for impeaching Bill Clinton. He laid out a fairly broad set of grounds that you could use to impeach a president. And I think one of the perhaps problematic parts of the Kavanaugh candidacy is that were he chosen, the Democrats would be able to go back to the Starr report and, and ask him fairly pointedly, um, these grounds that you've set out, how do they apply potentially to the president who nominated you? That's something that's on the minds of a few people in, in Trump's circle. It's fascinating to see all, all the dimensions to this here. Uh, Kelsey, I want to bring up to you, you know, I, I asked uh, Senator Ernst about the president's uh, comments at his rally this week about Senator Elizabeth Warren, in which he seemed to be dismissive of the Me Too movement. If you put that in the context of other things over the course of the week, in particular, uh, his hiring of Bill Shine to the communications shop. This is a, a former Fox News executive who was pushed out of that company because of allegations that he helped to silence women who'd been abused by the former CEO, Roger Ailes. Uh, is that an unfair dot to connect here? Are people being overly sort of judgmental? It, or is this a pattern of behavior that suggests the president doesn't take this seriously? I think that there, it's not unfair to su suggest that there is some pattern here. And I've talked to many Republicans included who feel that way. There is some concern, though, that Republicans don't all agree with the Me Too movement. I was just out reporting um, in several different states, including Washington state, where I talked to a lot of Republican women who feel like the Me Too movement is an arm of the left. Essentially, it's the kind of feminism that they don't connect with, and they don't connect with the idea of Me Too. And it may be that the president sees that in his base and doesn't feel that he has to be a part of what many people feel is not just a movement in American politics, but is a greater cultural movement across the world. So there, there is some tension happening here, and I think that it makes it very uncomfortable for particularly Republican women like Joni Ernst, uh, who don't, you know, who want to stand on the side of women and not necessarily have to be defending the president again on this. Rand, explain that, because this isn't necessarily a feminist platform aligned with certain positions. This is a movement about defending victims of abuse. What is the perception in conservative circles? Well, again, uh, the conservative world is very diverse and multifaceted, so I can't give We're you a single answer more to that. More and more these days. Oh, oh, sure, oh, sure. I mean, it's much more of a coalition than a, than a unified movement. But, but for I, the president to feel, as Kelsey was just laying out, that his base finds us something they agree with. Well, I'll say this. Uh, if you're looking at the gender gap in our politics right now, it is very pronounced. It is very extreme. This isn't just a development in the United States. This is true in all of the market democracies increasingly. Uh, Donald Trump does not fare well with uh, women 
women voters. It was very crucial that he win over married suburban women uh, in 2016, and that's a group where he is absolutely vulnerable. Uh, but it's also the case that even if you're looking at younger voters, he is doing respectably with men. So you don't really know what kind of counter-movement you might see. And also, Democrats are very successful in recruiting female candidates in this cycle. But that also goes along with the fact that many of these female candidates are very ideologically progressive in very pointed ways, uh, and that's something that might also elicit a backlash down the line. So we can't really predict exactly how this is going to turn out. I need to point out here that the president did pull the plug on his EPA administrator this week, Scott Pruitt, someone uh, who withstood a lot of negative headlines. Does he have a political future, and do you see his deputy stepping in as any kind of wholesale change? Uh, I imagine that the underlying policies will be consistent at the EPA. Uh, but as for Pruitt's political future, he is someone who is deeply political, deeply ambitious, has been for a very long time, had been lobbying. He endorsed Jeb Bush mm -hmm. uh, earlier on. And, you know, there are reports that he was very solicitous of having uh, a senior roles in the, in the federal government. So I think that he is certainly going to try to make a political comeback in the future. Whether or not that effort succeeds is an open question. And there are several investigations that are still going to run after, after That's he's gone. That's a good point to leave it on that those investigations continue. We'll be back in a moment with CBS News Justice and Homeland Security correspondent Jeff Begays. He's got a new book out on Russian efforts to tamper with U.S. elections. Memories make us laugh and cry. And sometimes cringe when we look back at our fashion choices. But in between flashbacks of bowl cuts and dad jeans, our memories are fading. And so is the old media that holds them. Hi, I'm Adam Baselogger. And I'm Nick Mako, and we're the founders of Legacy Box. Legacy Box is the easiest and safest way to preserve your family memories. Here's how it works. Fill Legacy Box with your outdated media. We professionally digitize and send them back on DVDs, thumb drive, or the cloud. Look, those forgotten home movies, VHS tapes, film reels and photos are degrading right before your eyes. Experience peace of mind and enjoy reliving the glory days. Join more than half a million families who have already trusted Legacy Box. Save your memories today. Visit LegacyBox.com save and for a limited time, get 40% off your order. That's LegacyBox.com save for 40% off. LegacyBox.com save. We're back now with my colleague Jeff Pegues, who covers the Justice Department and Homeland Security for CBS News. He's got a new book out called Compromat. That's the Russian term for compromising material about a public figure. And the question of whether Russia held that kind of damaging information about President Trump is one of the questions in this ongoing FBI investigation into his campaign. So with Presidents Trump and Putin set to meet next week, we thought the timing was perfect to talk to you. Somehow Jeff. it worked out. <laughs> Well, tell us here, because we know the Senate Intelligence Committee came out with the final version of their report saying the, the intelligence community was right to conclude, uh, as they did, that the Kremlin was trying to harm Hillary Clinton and de facto then also help uh, President Trump win this election. Why does it matter for the president to acknowledge this? Well, it matters because if you don't have a uniform approach to preventing this from happening during the midterms or the 2020 presidential election, that's a problem. And that's what we've seen, and that's what I report in this book, is that you have this system of, of trying to hold back these Russian intrusions. However, you know, the states are doing, uh, have a different plan, if you will, from the federal response. And why? Some people that I've talked to say that it's because there's no coordinated response coming from the top. Uh, and you need that to hold back what is, uh, some of the people that I've talked to have said, is that the Russian army uh, attacking these states. You can't have these states doing this alone. Uh, and that's why a lot of people think there has to be this coordinated response with leadership from the top. And we heard the Ambassador Tenedo talking about this kind of Russian interference in other countries as well. When it comes to our midterm elections, these are just right around the corner how much concern is there about interference? Well, this is an ongoing threat, and I think that's one thing that is lost with the Mueller aspect of this investigation is that 
this is an ongoing threat. You hear that from intelligence uh, agencies. You hear that from law enforcement agencies uh, and anyone trying to protect the election systems in this country. And so uh, you have to have this coordinated response to prevent this from happening again. This is a new form of warfare, something else that I think is lost, which is why I wanted to delve into the subject uh, in this book, Compromat. Uh, This is a new form of warfare. Yes, the Russians have meddled in elections before, but not to this scale with this cyber influence campaign that is affecting social media, that is affecting so much of what we do. And if you think about it this way, and these are some of the questions that I was asking myself when I started writing this book, if you can influence what Americans think, well, then, of course, you can influence how they vote. And that's why it's so important to find a way to push back against these Russian intrusions. The president's national security advisor was on this program just last week, and he drew a distinction. He said Vladimir Putin personally told him the Russian state did not carry out the hacking. What's the difference? Well, there there is no secret uh, in cyber circles that some of these countries hire contractors to carry out these cyber operations. Even Vladimir Putin has said in the past that patriotic hackers Uh, may have done this, Uh, people that he doesn't control. But U.S. intelligence agencies, they they laugh in the face of information like that. Because they say there's very little that Putin doesn't control? Well, exactly. And that was the case here. This was such a, a widespread operation. As I said, it's ongoing that there is no way that it could have happened without Putin's blessing. Uh, I also want to ask you, because I know you're, you're continuing to cover some of the, the reporting with the ongoing probe. Um, there was an interview uh, on another network with Michael Cohen, the former lawyer and fixer for the president, uh, who has been wrapped up in some of these financial probes. And now there's the question about whether he's going to cooperate with authorities. How do we understand that? You know, I've spent a lot of time over the last year or so talking to Michael Cohen, and and he has lately at least tried to avoid talking to reporters. But what I can tell you is that I've talked to people around him who say that uh, he has been uh, angered by some of the statements that Rudy Giuliani has made uh, about him, questioning his credibility. Uh, And what we've seen uh, just in talking to him over the last year or so is that his approach to uh, President Trump and his allies has become much more adversarial. And that is so unusual for Michael Cohen, who uh, liked to consider himself the president's fixer. He was uh, someone who uh, respected the president a great deal. And so to see this change in approach, he's hired new attorneys, mm-hmm. Lanny Davis being one of them who represented President Clinton. Uh, so there is a new approach here. Uh, And I have been told that he feels sort of isolated from the White House and the president's allies. Now, could that translate into him flipping? We'll just have to see. We'll be tracking that. Jeff, thank you. Good luck with the book. Thank you. We'll be right back. That's it for us today. Thanks for watching. Just a reminder that I'll see you tomorrow night at 9 p.m. for our CBS News special report on the president's Supreme Court nominee announcement. And of course, we'll see you right here next Sunday. For Face the Nation, I'm Margaret Brennan. Today's guests were Ambassador to NATO Kay Bailey Hutchinson, Iowa Senator Joni Ernst, and Delaware Senator Chris Coons. The executive producer of Face the Nation is Mary Hager. This broadcast was directed by Allison Hawley. Face the Nation originates from CBS News in Washington. For more Face the Nation, we're online at facethenation.com. If you like Face the Nation with Margaret Brennan, You can listen early and ad-free right now by joining Wondery Plus in the Wondery app or on Apple Podcasts. Prime members can listen ad-free on Amazon Music. Before you go, tell us about yourself by filling out a short survey at Wondery.com slash survey. A story of betrayal you would struggle to believe if it wasn't true. Listen to Blood is Thicker, the Hargan family killings, wherever you get your podcasts. Survivor 46 is here, and so is On Fire, the only official Survivor podcast, and we have a twist this season. The winner of Survivor 45, D. Vyadaris, will be joining us every week. We're going behind the scenes of the biggest moments, the how and the why things happen, and the strategy and analysis you can only get from someone like me, a Survivor winner. Listen to On Fire, the official Survivor podcast, wherever you get your podcasts.